Good morning. It's so good to be here. That song always gets me. That was my, my grandfather's, uh, one of my grandfather's favorite hymns. It's always a touching one to me. But I look forward to that day. The day when we will be gathered together in heaven, having my favorite line of that, flown like a bird from prison bars, having left the confines of this fleshly world to live in eternity with the Lord together forever. Such a glorious and wonderful thought. Um, I, I also want to say, uh, just as a, a separate note to Richard, um, ask my wife, you take air conditioning away from me, I'm not going to survive. I'm going to turn into a big baby. So a hundred years ago would be hard for me too, and we have much to be thankful for today. I want to continue our thought that we started last Sunday morning with our view on faith and a discussion about apologetics. We started talking last week understanding the very nature of faith is monumental when it comes to apologetics. And again, apologetics is just that ability, that desire to defend the Bible, to defend Christ. And when we're asked by someone uh, about our beliefs, we need to be very clear. I'm not asking you to believe because I say you should believe. I'm not asking you to believe because the church says you should believe. And, and quite honestly, I'm not asking you to believe because the Bible says you should believe. We need to be very clear on what we're doing, what our purpose is. Whenever, whenever we, we ask someone to, to come and openly and honestly study the evidence that God has provided for us, we're asking them to believe simply because it is the truth. That's what we're asking them to find. Now, yes, the Bible. The Bible is a key part of that for sure. As we mentioned last time, so are historical evidences, things that I hope to look more at in future lessons. But, but we need to know that when we go about this, we have a purpose, and that is to help them to examine the evidence, to reason through it, and build faith upon what is true. Now, when that happens, sometimes we run into problems. Sometimes we run into problems because a lot of times when you approach people with this, they don't come to the truth with honesty and open, open hearts. And it may be, even be today that there are those here, there may be some of our number today who for, for the past several years of their life have not come to the Bible with honest and open hearts. The reason for that is one that needs to be anticipated whenever we're talking to someone about the Bible. It's one that we need to be ready to confront. It's one that I think I can explain a little bit, maybe if we look at it first from a different light. So I want to tell you a story about two neighbors. One's name is Bob and the other's name is Bill. Bob and Bill have pets. Bob has a dog. Loves his dog. This dog is, is very uh, hyper, has, has a lot of energy, and one of its favorite things to do is escape from Bob's backyard, dig under the fence, and go and explore the neighborhood. Bill has a pet as well. It is his wife's prized bunny rabbit. Keep it in their backyard, beautiful white coat, put it in a pen, and they just love this bunny rabbit. So one day, Bob looks out while Bill and his wife are away and notice that his dog is in the backyard playing with something. And as he goes out to inspect, to his horror, he finds Bill's wife's bunny rabbit. The, the fur is no longer as white. It's covered in mud and dirt and, and blood. And, and the, the fur is tufted and pulled. And, and to his horror, worst of all, it's not alive anymore. 
And so very quickly wondering, what am I going to do? Assuming the worst has happened here, I've got to do something to save face. I've got to save this relationship. So he takes the bunny rabbit inside and he begins to wash the corpse and clean the dirt off of it. And he blow dries it and combs its hair and makes it look as pretty as he can. And he goes back into their neighbor's yard and he sticks it in the pen. And he goes back home thinking, I've saved face. I got away with it. And they go to bed that night. And when they wake up the next morning, he meets Bill by the car. And as they exchange customary greetings, uh, getting ready to head off to work, Bill says, Bob, I don't know if you heard last night, but we had a death in the family. The, the wife, the Mrs. Prized Bunny, Mr. Fluffykins, he has passed away. And she's taking it really hard. It's been really hard for her. She loved this rabbit. But you know what makes it worse? While we were gone, some sicko came and dug that thing up after we buried it and cleaned it up and put it back in the pen. Can you believe somebody would do that? The problem we have here is a problem that we face with Bible study, and that is presupposition. Bob assumed his dog had killed this rabbit and he had to do something with it. Presuppositions can be a huge danger when it comes to trying to understand the truth of the Word, uh, of the Bible. And that's what we're facing. And, and let me be very clear. When I told Holly I'm preaching this, I said, I'm going to say the word Mr. Fluffykins, and I'm going to say the word presupposition in the, same, in the same sermon. And she just looked at me like, well, you've probably lost your mind. Presupposition is not a word that I normally use. That's a $5 word when a 50-cent word will work. It means biases, assumptions. It is the, the assumption that is made on any topic before you consider additional information on that. So we, we make our mind up. This is, this is what I believe without hearing all of, the, all of the story, all of the evidence. The man who assumed his dog had snuck into his neighbor's yard and, and, and killed the animal. He was blocked from finding truth because of his assumptions. And that's what makes, that's what makes presupposition so dangerous. There are biblical examples of presupposition that I want to look at today as well. Turn over to John chapter 7. We're not going to read the entirety of this section, but we'll start in verse 25 and see that presupposition is not, biases are not, a new problem. Starting in verse 25, we'll read through verse 29. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, He is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to Him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where He is from. Then Christ Christ cried out from the temple, teaching and saying, You both know Me and know where I am from, and I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true, whom you do not know. I know Him because I am from Him, and He sent Me. So a little bit of context of what's going on here. Jesus is at this festival, the Feast of Booths, Jewish festival. And as He gets there and He begins to teach, the people are astonished. They're astonished, not mainly at His teaching, they're astonished that the Pharisees haven't captured Him yet. This is the guy that is claiming to be the Christ. The Pharisees, they don't know that He's the Christ, do they? How can He be the Christ? We know where He came from. Why aren't they arresting Him? Why aren't they doing something? That same line of thinking continues in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is He? 
Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him, some of them wanting to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said, Why did you not bring him? The officer answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. What we're dealing with here, with Jesus at this festival of booze and the problems surrounding his claim uh, and the, the claims of others that he is the Christ, is presupposition. They presupposed that Jesus had come from Galilee, namely Nazareth. And that brings up our first thing that we want to consider. Our presuppositions or our biases wrong. Were they wrong for supposing that He came from Galilee? And the answer to that is no. They weren't wrong at all. He was literally, He was Jesus of Nazareth. That was what He was known as. He came from Nazareth, the city of Nazareth. That's where He spent most of His life. It's where He, he had grown up. And so they had just assumed because of the, this, this is my prior knowledge that I know, this must be the case. He is from Galilee. How can he be the Christ? The Christ does not come from there. So they were not wrong in having a bias towards that. But did their bias lead them in the wrong direction? And can they lead us in the wrong direction today? The answer to that is absolutely. Just because they were assuming that to be true does not make it true. In fact, we know that he was not from Galilee. He was from the Judean city of Bethlehem. And he was born there. So that's the first thing that I want us to take away this morning. Biases, presuppositions are completely natural. We all have them. Every one of us here today has biases. That's how we navigate reality. We make assumptions on things based off of our presupposed notions. We assume every morning, just this morning, you assumed when you put your key in the ignition and turned it, your car was going to start. That's the reason you didn't go buy a brand new battery yesterday. That's the reason you don't go buy a brand new battery every single day because you assume this is what's going to happen. I put the key in, I start, the engine's going to fire up. We make assumptions when something's up on a high shelf and I can't quite reach it on my tippy toes, so I'm going to jump. We just assume that when I do that, I'm not going to go right through the roof and through the sky and into outer space. Something is going to bring me back down when I do that. It's also the same reason that we make the assumption when we're on a high platform, I don't want to jump off this thing because it's going to work in the reverse manner and bring me straight down and I may get hurt. We make assumptions every single day. And they are not, <clears throat> they are not dangerous. In fact, Oftentimes they help us, as I said, navigate our realities correctly. But they can become dangerous. They can become harmful when they block our ability to find truth. Truth is discoverable. Truth is not something that just exists on its own without, without any hopes of us finding it. We can find truth. And that's why examination and that's why reasoning are so important. They can help us to discover what's true on a subject as long as we don't get our presuppositions and our assumptions in the way. And that means what we need to do is we need to take these biases. 
We need to take our presumptions and we need to place them on the examination table right beside the evidence and critique them. Now, I once had an opportunity studying with a young man who had left his prior belief that instrumental music in worship was, was not okay. It was not uh, scriptural, was not founded in God's word. He had left that prior notion to now say, I believe we can have instrumental music in worship. His prior beliefs on how we use the Lord's money uh, in edifying the, the, the congregation and in evangelism and benevolence, he had left that to say, I believe we can use the Lord's money in many, many different ways that are outside of scripture. And so as I studied with him, I said, I said, your, your views, what your, what your conclusions are, they are anti-scriptural. They, they go against God's word. And his response to me was this. He said, you can't, you just can't see it because you're biased. And your biases are so myopic. You're, you're, what do you mean by that? Is you're, you're so focused in on your bias that, you were, that I was missing the truth. You're going to hear that when you study with people. You're going to hear people say, well, that's just what you think. That's just your background. And, and it's, I was raised in conservative Christianity. So you know what my answer to him was? Maybe so. Maybe I am letting my bias get in the way. Maybe I believe that you should not have instrumental music in worship because I've always believed that, because my family has always told me that. Maybe that's the reason. So here's what I suggest we do. Let's take your beliefs and my beliefs and our biases and let's set them up on the examination table and let's see which one we can poke holes in. Let's see which one, when, when examined, will float and which one will sink. Now, he didn't want to do this. He's, he, he said, that's, that's, not, that's not how, how, I want to, how I want to move forward. But that's not the point. The point is, I was not afraid to have my biases examined. Absolutely true that I'm biased towards conservative Christianity. That's all I've ever known. But it's not true because it's my bias. And that's the thing I want you to take from this. Whenever we place our biases on the examination table, it is not dangerous. Because if they're wrong, if our biases are standing in the way of truth, then we want to move them out of the way. We want to find out that these are leading me away from what God has said, and, and I want to move those so that nothing is blocking me. But if they're right, then we learn that I wasn't believing this because I was biased towards it. I'm believing it because it's true. And our strength and our faith can be strengthened. Um, the, the truth, something that a, a good friend of mine, I've heard him say countless times in my life over and over again, the truth should never fear examination. Should never fear. If you are afraid to take your thoughts and put them up to examine, question whether or not you truly believe this is truth or not. We need to know truth always will win out because it can be found, it can be discovered. I want to read to you a quote from a book, and this is going to be a mouthful, the Jesus Legend, A Case for the Historical Reliability of the Synoptic Jesus Tradition. Whew, that's a whole lot of words and it sounds kind of scary. The point of this book, uh, the, the author is uh, Paul Eddy and Gregory Boyd. The point is to show that Jesus was not a myth, even though their title sounds kind of funny. That's the purpose of this book. Listen to what they say. The question is not whether we have biases. We all do. The question rather is, do we, as a matter of method and principle, strive to place our quest for the truth ahead of our personal biases? Is our concern for truth in principle 
greater than, say, our concern for security and our maintaining our current perspective at all costs. What they're saying is, do you want to be right or do you want to have the truth? Do you want your life to not change or do you want to have the truth? What's more important to you? I think that's a valuable question for us to ask ourselves. What's more important for me, winning the argument or being found on the side of truth, on being found on the side of God? They say, don't let something like security, what might happen to my life if I shift my views? Uh, what might happen to my job if I shift my views? My current perspective, what I've believed to be right all this time, don't let those things be your basis. Remember, we're not asking people, believe this because I say so. Believe this because the church says so. Seek out truth. Let that be our concern. Do we allow our biases to predetermine our conclusions, even in the face of clear and substantial counter-evidence, or are we willing to allow evidence and alternative arguments challenge our biases and possibly modify, modify our conclusions? This is the challenge that we place before ourselves first. Joe did a great job talking about that in class this morning, about the role of a shepherd is first to himself. We place our challenge to say, why do I believe what I believe? Do I, is it just because I've been told to believe this my whole life, or is this the truth from God? Am I resting upon a firm foundation? And then we take that challenge and we expand it to those we are studying with. And we have to know, biases are going to be there. We all have them. But we have to examine them to see, are they affecting my search? Are they affecting somebody else's search for truth? And so what do biases and presuppositions have then to do with apologetics? In one word, they have everything to do with apologetics. When you are defending the Word of God, when you are explaining to others the reason for your hope, we have already shown biases, presuppositions will affect what we view as true. Someone whose worldview, someone whose, who, whose mindset is the world is flat. That's their worldview. The, the, the world that we know and everything that you see, you look out here, you got the, the sky and you got the ground, but their worldview is we live in a flat earth. That's their, that's their mindset. And that's what they believe. That is built off of presuppositions. It is built off of things that they assume. They, these assumptions are foundational to that belief. It's also foundational to how they perceive all other information. Everything that they receive, all the information you give, is gathered and viewed through the lens of this assumption that the world is flat. That affects their view of truth. But it also affects something else. It affects what they'll admit as evidence. If I bring you evidence of a picture from outer space and say, look, the world looks round in this picture. It looks kind of spherical that picture is going to be affected by their assumptions. They may describe it in different ways. They may dismiss it in different ways. But they're going to see it, and they're going to determine whether they will accept it as evidence or not based off of their assumptions that the world is flat. And so what I, what I want us to realize as we continue on then is how does this apply to apologetics? What it means is our presumptions, they act as a sieve. You ever used a sieve? You know what a sieve is? That is um, an instrument, usually a, a kind of the shape of a pan, that has a mesh bottom. I remember the most use I ever got out of one was whenever I would go and play at, at the park at home. We would get one and we would go to the big sandbox 
And I would scoop up as much sand as I could and I would shake it with hopes that as the sand fell through, it had that mesh that would allow sand to fall through, it would catch something of real value, maybe coins or something that a kid left or maybe hang upside down from the, the monkey bars and they fell out of their pockets. I would find something really valuable. Now, for all of our kids that might be thinking of doing this, I found nothing of real value. The only things I ever really found were things that I think animals had left behind for me to find. So, so this was not a way to get rich quick. But we understand what a sieve does now. A sieve, it has, it has parameters. A sieve has holes in it that allow things that conform to it to pass through. Whenever you are mining for gold, you, you scoop up that, that sand by the edge of the river and you let the water, because the water, it can by its very makeup, can pass through and the sand and the dirt will wash down and break down and pass through. But what you're left with are those are pieces of rock and hopefully pieces of gold that will not pass through. And we can take that and, and, and turn that into money. We see how sieves work. In fact, this is a sieve. This is how a lot of people think of them. Just because you know, lunch is around the corner, and this is not a really great picture, but that's a nice big chocolate cake. And the baker is, is shaking some chocolate cocoa powder onto the top of this cake, and she's using a sieve, or he, I don't know, is using a sieve that is separating out the, the larger chunks of that cocoa powder for the finer ones. So those fine flavor, uh, flavors will get down on top of that cake. Now, why is that a problem? Why are presuppositions acting as a sieve a problem? Because what they do, what they do is they block out things that don't conform to them. And if our presupposed thoughts are blocking out solid and reasonable evidence just because it doesn't conform to what I believed pre previously, then what we're doing is we're taking ourselves and we're stepping out of the way of truth. We're stepping out of the path that's leading us to the truth to make sure that we don't lose what we've always believed. And I want to see this again in a picture from our atheist friends. Naturalists, atheists oftentimes will proclaim to believe that nature alone, nature alone can create the universe. They say there is no God, there is no supernatural creation of, of, of the worlds and the universe and, and, and all that we know. What do you think their view is going to be on miracles. They're already assuming there is no God. There is no supernatural. And so a, a Red Sea crossing, just supernaturally water being parted and the ground being dried up for a nation to walk across. What do you think they're going to do with that? What do you think they're going to do with a, a, a man who is able to, to feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish? Miraculously, what are they going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? A man who has died but been brought back to life supernaturally. <coughs> we see that their pre-assumed belief that there is no God and there cannot be things that are supernatural would lead them to say, well, then anything regarding miracles, I can't accept because I don't believe that. I don't believe in God. So, I don't believe in the supernatural, so I don't believe in supernatural events. What would that lead them to do with the evidences that account the performance of miracles, such as our very own Gospels? The Gospel accounts of Jesus record over and over again. Eyewitness testimonies, hundreds and thousands of which record 
the performance of miracles. What they would say is, this does not fit into my parameters. This doesn't fit into my assumptions. I believe there is no God. I believe then there can be no supernatural. So there are no miracles. And if your evidence that you're bringing to me includes miracles, right off the bat, that's not getting in. Because I have already made my mind up. I don't believe. I want you to think about this in the form of a a famous debate that happened many years ago. There was a man by the name of Antony Flew, at the time an atheist. Uh, He was debating with this man, Gary Habermas, on the... uh, the idea of an atheist and, and a, a theist, someone who believes in God and does not believe in God, why they have their views. And Gary made this comment during, the, during the, the, the debate. Most critics deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of an anti-supernatural bias against miracles, not because of inferior evidence. His point is, it's not because I don't have enough evidence to show you. We've already shown, we've already talked a little bit about that last week. The evidence for the resurrection of Christ, it's there. And it's not just one or two little pieces. We have a a landslide of evidence to say Christ existed and He died and and then He was seen again. He was resurrected in some way. And and even the, the foes of Jesus talked about this and said, we don't understand it. We don't know how it happened. But there is something that happened around His life. He says it's not because we don't have the evidence. Because the evidence cannot get in because you have a bias. You have something standing in the way blocking the evidence. Now, as I said, Antony Flew, Mr. Flew, was then an atheist. Later in his life, he, he changed his position and denounced atheism, claiming, <coughs> in keeping, and this is important, in keeping my lifelong commitment to go where the evidence leads, I now believe in the existence of God. He said, my commitment in life as a scholar, and we need to understand what that word means. It means exactly what he's saying here. My my role as a scholar means I go where the evidence takes me. If I am a scholar in Shakespearean literature, I look at the evidence of that Shakespearean literature and I let it lead me where it's leading. I don't come with my biases that say, This is the truth about Shakespeare. I look at the evidence. If I'm a historical scholar, if I'm a mathematical scholar, no matter what it is, I let the evidence lead me. The problem is, we've allowed the word scholar to be used in connection with skeptic. Skeptics claim, so many scholars claim that they they, they don't believe in God. One of the the, the easiest places to find an atheist is to go into the academic world and, and go to some of the, the scholarly in our life and say, do you believe in God? No, I cannot believe in God. That's preposterous. That's, that's nonsense. Why? It's not because the evidence has led them there. It's because there is a bias in their life that says, I can't believe that because it doesn't conform to my predetermined beliefs. Scholars go where the evidence leads them, and the evidence is massive and solid. It is more unreasonable, as I said last week, to deny the countless eyewitnesses that saw Jesus in His life on earth and afterwards, even after His resurrection. It is more unreasonable to deny that than to say, I believe in a risen Jesus Christ. 
But that's why presuppositions are so important when it comes to apologetics. When it comes to giving someone a reason for the hope that is in us, where do we typically like to turn? Right here. Say, why do you believe in God? Here's why I believe in God. Let me give you the evidence. Let me show you why I believe in God. Let me give you the the mountains of evidence. But if someone's reasoning is not able to perceive that, if someone is not able to take that evidence and reasonably examine it, we're wasting our time. Another picture of that is with our children. I can't go to a four, five-year-old child who is convinced the car moves forward because mom and dad, like Fred Flintstone, have their feet underneath just pedaling away on the concrete as hard as they can. I can't take that little child and say, let me explain to you how an engine works, how combustion happens, how thousands of times a minute little micro explosions go off inside your car that cause it to go forward. They're going to say, no, mom and dad are doing it. I can't even pick them up and say, let me show you the evidence. Pop the hood, point to the engine. How do you explain that? They say, I don't have to. Mom and dad are doing it. You're being preposterous, Kyle. There's no such thing as an engine. Now, I can't really maybe picture Henry. Well, actually, maybe I could picture Henry telling me it's preposterous. But we have to understand, we have to speak to them and teach them in ways that they can reason through it. And that means that when we're dealing with someone who is seeking truth or dealing with someone who is criticizing truth, we need to first determine, do they have biases? And as we've already said, it's, it, they, they're going to. Whether or not their biases harm them or not, we, well, that's yet to see. What that means is we have to spend time talking to them. That's usually not the first thing we want to do. You see, usually when someone comes to us with a question, as I said, we're ready to dump the mountains of evidence on them. We're ready to talk in that way and not find out what kind of background they have. We're not called to destroy our enemies with mountains of evidence. We want to pick up our sword of the Spirit and whenever someone comes up critiquing, I'm ready to chop arms off. That's not how the weapon that has been given to us is intended to be used. In fact, think about what Paul says in In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Now sometimes we we spot read. No unwholesome word. Paul said, don't cuss. Next lesson. But we have to continue on there. Because that's not all that he said on that. He said, don't let an unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up, according to the need of the moment. That means it might be good this time, but it might not be good over here. We have to be able to reason ourselves. Is this good for the need of the moment? So that it will give grace to those who hear. We need to speak gracefully with those that are seeking truth and with those that are maybe criticizing truth as well, recognizing this is someone God wants. This is a heart, a soul that God wants. And so my job is not to go and chop them to pieces and when they're a pulp, I'll I'll do like like Bob did. I'll clean up the corpse and try to bring it to God and say, hey, look, everything's good. We need to use wholesome words. What are words that are going to build up this situation? 
We need to think about things and determine, is there a bias here that says, I can't, like we talked about, can I believe in miracles? I can't believe in miracles. We need to approach them from that standpoint. We need to begin working there. We also need to know that our society, our society has been programmed to be skeptical. What are we told over and over again? Don't trust your eyes. It's an illusion. It's magic. Don't trust the government. It's a big lie. And I, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to go on a sidebar here for a moment, but when it comes to conspiracy theories, and I love a good conspiracy theory. I can talk about conspiracy theories all day long. I'm not quite a tin hat wearing conspiracy theorist, but I still love them. <clears throat> but you know where I don't talk about them? Don't talk about them with unbelievers. I don't talk about them with people that have been told their whole life, you can't trust anything. Instead, we need to show them there is a source that you can trust. There is something worth believing. And you can absolutely place your faith, place your faith in that instead of talking about things that they cannot trust. We also need to start where they are. I think about the, the Ethiopian eunuch. This guy had biases. Uh, possibly he is a Jew, a Jew, but most likely he is proselytized. He is someone that came out of the pagan world to a Jewish faith and is now studying about reading and being told about Christianity. He has all sorts of biases. He's going to believe all sorts of things that are, that are going to be slightly opposed or completely opposed to Scripture. Peter, or Peter, Philip, Philip does not go into him with, let me just, just destroy every one of your thoughts. He just simply says, let's start where you're at in Isaiah. That's where you're thinking about. And let's lead from here where you are and all of your presuppositions and all your pre-thoughts. Let's go from there and let's head towards Christ. We need to start where they are. And sometimes that means we're going to start with their doubts. We do not dismiss doubts when they arise. Someone might say, like, like Mr. Flew, he said, I, the evidence has taken me to believe in God. I must believe in God. There is too much evidence to show that there cannot be a God. But he believed in an Aristotelian God. That is the God of Aristotle, the God that created the universe. Certainly there is a, a power, a, a, singular, a singular power that created all of this. But what does it have to do with me? That was, that was Mr. Flew's uh, assumption. It's not the God of the Bible. I believe in a God. There is too much evidence to show that, but I don't believe in this God. Sometimes you'll hear that said this way. I believe in the God of the New Testament, but not the God of the Old. The God of the Old Testament, he was all about hate and, and murder and violence, but the God of the New Testament is about love and feelings and emotion. I believe in that God. Those are doubts. And we need to not dismiss those. Sometimes we like to take that and go, well, I don't really have a good answer for that. I will just kick it on down the road and, and we're going to talk about other things. Guess what happens? A doubt is like a yo-yo. You can throw it away, but it's going to come back. It's going to come back over and over and over again. And eventually, that doubt can erode a faith. So we need to deal with them. We need to be prepared to say, okay, you have a very real doubt. Let's set it up on the examination. Let's look at some evidence. Let's find out how can we handle this and show you to believe and trust in the truth. So when someone says, I don't believe in God, that's a doubt. But what we've learned is it's a doubt based on probably a bias towards something. Our answer should not be to flip to Genesis 1 so fast that pages flip out of our Bible and scream to them, in the beginning proves. 
in the beginning proves nothing to someone who does not have who has a bias against the Bible. We need to understand that there's going to be times then that the best way that we reach them is we show them this is why this is why you can trust me. This is why you can trust me to try and lead you towards truth because I'm not looking at this through my biases. I'm willing to take my biases and set them up right there with you and we'll look at it together openly with open minds. Because we are called to fight, but we're called to fight a different type of battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, don't wrestle with flesh and blood. That's not the way we fight. He says that you fight like how he told the Corinthians to fight. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. He's telling the, the Corinthians, I'm coming. And I, I, I would really like to come and not have to have this huge big, big discipline match to correct all the problems that are here. You all need to know the problem began in your minds. It began in your thoughts. That's what we're fighting for. And what that means is at some point, you were like this. A fortress raised up against the knowledge of God that said, I believe what I believe. I'm in my ways, my thoughts. And somebody, somewhere loved you enough to patiently come and say, through their example and through their words, there's something different. There's something worth believing in. That happened to you. You were under the dominion of Satan and you were rescued. You were brought into the kingdom or the control of His Son. But I want you to think about this very last point. And it comes from Colossians 1.13. It says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Who's Paul talking about there? He's not talking about... He's not talking about someone who taught him. He's not talking about the, the, the people that have shown him all the ways that his past pharisaical life was, was incorrect. He says, who's rescued us? It's God. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And that brings up the very last point that I want you to know about biases and about presuppositions. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, how do I change someone's mind? Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just don't. But you remember you haven't failed. Our labor, our, what we are called to do in, in, in dealing in apologetics, the purpose is not to transfer a soul from the power of Satan into the power of God. You see, God says, that's my work. I transfer the souls. What He's asked us to do is simply be ready to sow seed. And sometimes, yes, that means here's the evidence of God. Here's His Word. Here's why it can be trusted. But other times that means I'm going to show love and I'm going to show grace in my words and in my actions and I'm going to build relationships with those who have doubts and skepticisms and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God provides an opportunity for His Word to be received. And I'm going to remember... I'm dealing with people who most of their life have been taught, be skeptical. But skepticism can be overcome and evidence and truth can be discovered. 
That's our purpose with evangelism. And that's our purpose here today. If you have not yet believed in the Lord through seeing the truth of His life and and responding to that, having that belief move you to an act of obedience, our greatest hope is that we can study together. Our greatest hope is that you will believe in in Jesus Christ and, and as the Son of God and that in believing in Him you may have life in His name. That belief begins by turning to the Word of Christ. We can talk about that today. We can do that just, just now if you want. And it continues in obedience. In turning our mind to Christ and allowing our life to follow. The first step of that is repentance, which begins with giving our life to God and submitting our will to His in baptism. But it continues through our life as we faithfully follow all that He has commanded. Can we assist you with that this morning? I encourage you not to let anything stand in your way. If there's anything we can do, we are ready to assist. If you'll come forward right now as we stand and sing.